Good morning. My name's Fritz, and along with Murray, I am one of the pastors here. And uh, you can turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Romans is toward the back of the Bible. It's in the New Testament, if you are new to your Bible. Um, So I have uh, had a father who was very into maps. Very, do y'all even remember maps, some of you young people? Not Google Maps, not on your phone, but the old school maps that you would unfold or even better than that, an atlas. And so every year we would go on vacation from Mississippi to Ohio because that's where everybody goes on vacation. We would go see our grandparents and that was our vacation. Um, And even though we did it every year and sometimes twice a year, my dad knew the route, he knew how to get there, it didn't matter. He knew where we were going, it didn't matter. At 4.30 on the morning we would leave, he would be up with his black coffee and he would have his atlas spread out on the table and his highlighter and his pens. And he's just looking at that atlas and he's making marks. Come see this and look at this. We're going to do this. And he knew how to get there. But he loved the map. And so as we look through Romans, in fact, you really can use this as a framework for the entire Bible There are lots of maps in the Bible. And the maps are glorious. The last few weeks we have been talking about a map called, what theologians call the doctrine of sin. It's a map. But we have to remember it's not the destination. It's how we get there. It's part of the plan. But what we're going to get to today is the destination as Paul unfolds to us where this map is leading, the very righteousness of God that you and I know that we lack and yet we need and we long for. Let me read our text this morning. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? And and if you don't understand this language, just think religious people. People that have always known about God. They've sort of grown up in a religious setting. No, not at all, Paul says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, basically non-Jewish people, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever, excuse me, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, one commentator translated this, tada. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's again pray. <clears throat> Father, I admit this morning that um, I feel the pressure to be justified by works of the law. Um, some of that is good pressure. This is possibly the most weighty uh, passage and weighty and significant teaching in the entire Bible. And yet, Lord, thank you that throughout the centuries you have always used broken vessels, weak instruments, uh, clay pots, Lord, to shine the light of the gospel by your Holy Spirit, all the more to magnify your name. We pray that you would do that God, for those who are your people this morning, use this passage to strengthen their faith in Jesus apart from the law. And Lord, we pray for those who are not Christians this morning, and this uh, may be very confusing to them that you, through your Holy Spirit, would not only give them understanding in their minds, but you would enlighten the eyes of their hearts to believe in Jesus, the very righteousness of God. We pray this in His name. Amen. So I'm going to give you some stories that I've given you before, but half of you have not been here that long, 
And some of you miss church like I do because of crying, sick babies, and things like that. But if you haven't, you're going to hear them. If you have, you're going to hear a couple again. I'm just going to go and tell you that. But I will say Jesus used a lot of the same stories and sermons he preached over and over. So there you go. And this one you probably have heard or you read about, but it's about a lady named Nadia Popovici. She wrote a message on her phone in large red letters, as large as you can get them on a phone, that said MOLE, M-O-L-E. And then she wrote cancer. And then she wrote doctor. She was trying to get the attention of Brian Hamilton, who was an assistant equipment manager for a hockey team. She was at a hockey game, and she could see Brian's neck, the back of his neck, and she could see that he had a mole on her back, and she was very familiar with work that she did of what melanoma cancer looked like. And Brian could not see it, and if he could see it, he just thought it was a mole. And she was trying to say, Brian, you have a diagnosis. You need to get treated. And that really is what Paul is doing today. This is what Paul has been doing all through the book of Romans. It's really that simple. He's saying, I'm giving you the diagnosis. You have a problem. You have a cancerous problem called sin. And if you've never heard Romans 3 before or read it, that was probably, you're like, what is wrong with these Presbyterians? All this talk about sin, right? And God is saying, here's the diagnosis. But He's not just stopping at the map. He wants you to get to the destination. He wants you to see the solution, the cure, the righteousness of God. So the first thing I want to say to this morning, I ran this by my wife. I said, honey, is this an okay outline? Redeemer, we got a problem. She said, use it. So here it is, Redeemer. You and I have a problem. What is our problem? It is that we have a spot on the back of our neck that is cancerous. And yet it's worse than that. We have a, a spot on our heart that is cancerous. It is called sin. It's not that we are not only unrighteous, as Paul demonstrated in chapter 1, but that all of our attempts at righteousing ourselves in chapter 2 are futile. And the first part, you're probably going to hear a lot about in a lot of churches. Or you're going to ignore it. But very often, we don't hear about the second part. And we just let churches and Christians try to righteous themselves. And Paul says that's futile. And Murray demonstrated that last week. The first thing under this point of having a problem is what Paul says in verses 9 and 10, that we are, or verse 9, we are under sin. Listen now, he says it. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. What Paul's referring to is chapter 3, verse 1, when he says there are advantages in being Jews. There are advantages of growing up, so to speak, in the church and having the covenants and having you know, the Passover and the, the sacrifices. There's total advantages to that. 
You're sort of at the kids' table, right, as we've said before. And there's this great meal, and you should say, I want that meal. But he says, there is no advantage when it comes to your standing and status with God. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church all your life, and you know every hymn in the hymn book, and you know all the contemporary hymns. It doesn't matter when it comes to status. Listen to how he says it. We are all under sin. That idea is being held fast by something. Held under water. It's a positional word. Sin is personified as a cruel master. What Paul is saying, no matter who you are, Jew or Greek, rich or poor, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter. We are all universally under sin. Now, it doesn't just mean that we're all in the same boat because what we do is we we know that we're in the same boat, so we jump out of that boat and we swim over and we get in another boat and we say, well, I'm not in that boat. Well, here's the problem. Paul's saying you're all in the same lake. Doesn't matter what boat you're in. It doesn't matter. We are all under sin. And then, basically, verses 10 through 18 is a, I'm going to spell this word because I don't know how to pronounce it, C-A-T-E-N-A, katina of Old Testament quotations. That's what this is, officially. And what it is, it's a way that you would argue reason to clinch a case already established by various arguments, chapters 1 and chapter 2. It would be like a lawyer in a court of law giving what? A closing argument. Notice, if you look in your footnotes, in all of these quotes, he quotes the Psalms several times, he quotes the Proverbs, and he quotes Isaiah. Now here's the kicker. We're not going to like this, especially if you're a good person. You're not going to like this at all. But I'm warning you, if you, go, if you go back and you look at those quotations, for example, in one of the Psalms, David would say, using these verses, if you go back and look them up, he'd go, those evil people over there, the enemies of God, the wicked. And there's certainly a way the Old Testament broke down people between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous were God's chosen people, not righteous of themselves. But there is a way you can speak of yourself as in this certain situation, even though Psalm 51 is true and I am unrighteous in this situation, that person is persecuting me and I'm righteous in this case. And Paul is saying, I don't care, David, we're all unrighteous. All those quotes about evil people and the wicked and the enemies of God, he's saying... To everyone, this is us. We're all wicked. Now, if you look closely at these these verses, look at verses 14 and 15 just for example. He doesn't mean we're kind of wicked or kind of sinful. And I know for some of you this is very hard because you think comparatively and reasonably you're a pretty good person. But look what he says, verse 14. Their mouths are full of bitterness. This doesn't mean you got a little bitterness caught in your tooth. Full. We've all seen a kid with too much in their mouth. We've all seen adults. It's not pretty. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. In other words, we're not neutral. We're not sort of in the middle. We're not running to God or sort of in the middle again. We're running away from God with a gun in our hand. That's the image. And that is so hard for good, moralistic Christian Americans to get, isn't it? Now, does it mean we're as wicked as we could be all the time? No. Does it mean that a non-Christian can't do good moral things? No. But listen to how Tim Keller says it. Whether you are mauled by a lion or bit by a poisonous spider, you're in the same boat, aren't you? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, whether you're standing on top of Mount Everest or you're in the valley, you are still an infinite distance from touching the stars. It doesn't matter. Jones goes on to say that according to the Bible, every human being is in one of two positions. We're either under sin or under grace. The Bible does not say, is he a good person? We must always think of ourselves not primarily in terms of actions or behavior. That's what we do. But it is our whole condition that matters. Listen to this. He says, you may live a very good life and not be a Christian at all. Jesus says in Mark, what defiles a man is not all this outward stuff we get concerned with, how much you drink or smoke, but it's what comes from within. That's where sin is. In summary, look at verse 23. Paul says it this way. All have sinned, and that's past tense. All have sinned and fallen short, are falling short. That's the continual present in the Greek. We are all under sin. And this is why verses 19 and 20, works don't work. They're futile. Listen to how he says it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. By works of the law, no human will be justified in God's sight. You cannot righteous yourself in God's sight. Your merit does nothing to make you right before God and His law because what actually happens is through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Children, if your parents say, don't eat a Twinkie, and there are no Twinkies in the house, pretty easy, right? Now, what if you know there are Twinkies in the cupboard? Well, it gets a little tougher, doesn't it? Some of you are telling your parents right now, go buy me some Twinkies. What if there are Twinkies on the counter? And what if your parents aren't there? It gets a lot harder, doesn't it? And Paul says that's what... Don't run to the law to justify yourself. Actually, just use a little bit of it. Just a tiny bit. Okay, you're like, all right, Fritz, well, I ain't murdered anybody. Well, okay, have you perfectly loved your neighbor in every instance? Have you given to the poor every chance you could? Have you lived a life in service of other people? See, works don't work. 
they only heighten the futility of it. I, I really want to laugh in Genesis 3 when after Adam and Eve sin, what do they immediately do? Now they're not naked and unashamed. That's how they would have been, like a three-year-old running around the house. They don't care. But now sin and condemnation and the law and all those things are very differently, are different to them. And what do they do? They get some little fig leaves and they cover their loins. Right? You've all seen the book in the dentist. And I, I, I just wonder if God didn't kind of like... Guys, come on now. Really? That's going to work? See, the problem is it feels like it works. And it seems like it works because you get plenty of confirmation in a world trying to justify itself by righteousness, don't you? And we all find people in boats just like us and we live in these little vacuums where people pat us on the back and we pat them on the back and they're all the bad guys and we're not. It seems like it works. It looks good on the outside. When I was young, I went to Hikes Retreat Baptist Church, and I don't remember if I've told you this story. I actually told it at the Moth podcast thing. Don't worry about all that. I almost won. About one-tenth of a point I lost, but don't worry about that either. But when I was a kid, we would raise money for our youth group and for things by having cake auctions and I loved it I didn't necessarily like to bake or cook but I'd love to go to cake auction and get free cakes because I had a major sweet tooth and we all knew who made the best cake every year it was quiet little Miss Posey that worked at the little corner store by the church she didn't say much but boy she could bake and so one year we went and I went immediately to that table and I perused all these cakes. There were German chocolate cakes, there were lemon cakes, there were pineapple cakes, there were pink cakes, there were all kind of cakes, but the one that stood out was this white log cake full of white, creamy, wavy icing, just glorious. And I went to my mom and I said, you've got to get this cake, we've got to win this cake. And I could go through the whole story about how I didn't trust my mom and so I was bidding against her the whole time and the price went way up and finally she screams, Fritz, and all that. But here's the point. We get the cake and I guard that thing like the Ark of the Covenant. And we get home and I'm not even sure I was supposed to use a knife this big, but I got it out. And I started cutting, went through that white ice. I could already imagine myself eating that cake, right? And I started cutting and all of a sudden I heard Robert Lell, our chief church chef, is thinking, somebody burned that cake. Nope. Miss Posey played a trick on me. She took green florist foam and she covered it with white icing. We called her, and I've never heard her speak and laugh so much in my life. But here's the problem. That stuff looks good on the outside, doesn't it? And Paul says it's futile. Because we got a problem inside. 
And it's not just green foam. It's worse. But look, this is all a map. Because Redeemer God has a solution. He has a cure. He has a remedy. Again, verse 21, Tada! Look, behold, something else is here. Something more important. The righteousness that God requires, He provides. See, all of us know, even if you're not in the church, you've never read the Bible, you have a conscience that is trying to accuse and defend you. You're trying to keep some moral requirements and you know you need those. And God is saying, bingo! Here you go. I'm going to give it to you. Now look, I would say verses 21 through 26 are some of the most important verses in the Bible, and I'm either going to write about them this week in my saddle, or we're going to come back in a couple weeks because Tony's doing chapter four, part of chapter four next week. But I just want to say two things about this righteousness that God provides. But there's a lot here. First of all, it is the righteousness that God provides because we need it because it does two things. It cleanses us from our dirty, sinful condition. And it gives us a righteousness that is pure and beautiful and glorious in God's eyes. Okay? So the first thing is through this big word in verse 25 that a lot of people have lots of debate about and all the non-Christians and all the people that, that think the Bible's crazy, they think this word is crazy because they don't understand it. Again, I may write about it, we'll come back to it. But it's the word in verse 25 for propitiation. Propitiation, whom God has put forward, that is Christ Jesus, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What it's saying is that our sinful condition requires payment for sin. And that people get uncomfortable with that. Well, you're trying to pay for your sin in some way is all I'm going to tell you. Let God do it. Let God provide it. He has provided it. It's through the atoning death of Jesus. And if you understand the Old Testament, what he says here back in verse 21, that the law and the prophets, he said this in chapter 1, they're all pointing forward, they're all maps to point to Jesus. So when your non-Christian friend asks you, I don't understand all that blood stuff and Leviticus and mold and mildew, say, are you kind of mildewy sometimes? Yeah. Do you kind of stain your relationships? Yeah. Do other people cause ugliness and dirt? And we use the word toxic, toxicity. Yeah. It's all pointing to Jesus. The sacrifices, even the law, the blood, God's forbearance and His patience. They're all showing something, demonstrating, pointing to something that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice provided by God to God. Jesus is priest. Jesus is sacrifice. And what it does, He says is it makes you clean. Perfect timing with the bell. Because we don't believe that. It means that we don't have to pay for our sin. We don't have to make up for what is lacking. We don't have to hide that we feel like failures. 
We don't have to clean up, purify, cleanse, wash, rewash. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for your sin. In Luke chapter 5, while Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. When Jesus died on the cross before you were even born, God saw you as clean. Do you believe that? The second thing that happens through the righteousness of God is a righteousness is given to you that you lack. See, in many ways, we understand and we get that Jesus died for our sin. But what we do, like a hamster, is we jump on a wheel and we start racing and running and trying to perform to now get God's approval, to obey Him and live a life that pleases Him in order to compensate for our lack of pleasing Him. Well, I know, Fritz, but aren't we supposed to please God? Yes, we'll get to all of that. We'll get to that. But Paul wants you to understand first, stay away from that will. Jesus came to obey the law perfectly. Listen to how he says it in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And again, I'm, I'm stealing from Tony's thunder. But just look at verse 3. When he's talking about Abraham, he says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to, to him as righteousness. It's not something he earned. It wasn't like a wage. It was something Jesus earned and that was accounted to Abraham. It was imputed to Abraham. And so everything that Jesus did beautifully, righteously, obediently, every ounce of Jesus' holiness and obedience is given to Fritz Games. And if it can be given to me, well surely it can be given to you. It's imputed to us. Let me just ask it this way. Why is it that we are so consumed with what others call forms of righteousness? Why is it that we are consumed with the facade of I'm okay? I'm not doing great, but I'm just okay. Why? What are we protecting when we won't let somebody into that? We are protecting our little righteousness because we think we have to now, even though we're forgiven and purified, we have to, as Paul says later, establish our own righteousness. And if I really let somebody know how I'm doing, they're going to see that you're really not that righteous. Yeah? Why do we keep marital spats to ourselves? Because we're protecting righteousness. Why are we so consumed with standards and statistics and ACT scores and SAT scores and you know what, what, where we're going to get into next? Why are we so concerned with where we stand with our peers, 
our financial status, our bank accounts? Why do we fear being wrong? You know, sometimes when you're wrong, you actually learn right. But we're terrified that that maybe we're not righteous. Why do we have such black and white answers on social issues? Every social issue has levels of complexity. Just dig. Why do we proclaim how busy we are and hold up our calendar righteousness? Our parenting methods. How well our baby sleeps or doesn't sleep and we don't want to tell people. Diets. Secondary theological doctrines. Here's one. Rescue dogs. You know what I'm talking about? You got a rescue dog? I am so happy for you. Come rescue my dog. You can have her. (laughs) But why do you have to tell me over and over, we rescued this dog. It's a rescue dog. Yeah, great. We had a friend one time, y'all may have used this, you may use this, but back in the 80s or 90s, I think it was the 90s, there was this thing called Juice Plus. And it was like all your fruits and vegetables diluted into two pills, and they were nasty. But it was a way to get your fruits and vegetables, and whoop, you know, she couldn't quit talking about it. Have you done Juice Plus? Have you read this on Juice Plus? I don't want to eat Juice Plus. Okay, I'll take it, whatever. See, we will run to anything because deep down we know we are not righteous and we assume we must provide it. What if God provided it? I read this story the other day on this lady and her husband that they started black entertainment television. I read it in my AARP magazine. But they found it and they got so successful and he cheated on her several times and it it destroyed her. And she said, basically, I had to do something. And so she founded this real estate company and she is like rolling in dough now. And this is what she said. Once I got out of that marriage, I said, you know what? I'm going to prove to the world that I can move forward and build a new company. I'm going to prove to the world. Who said you have to prove anything? See, we're doing that all the time. We're trying to prove to each other how righteous we are. What if God proved to the world? What if God proved to Himself your worth? What if God proved to the cosmic powers and rulers and authorities and said, Look at my son. In him, these goof buckets are declared righteous. Wow. That's exactly what God does. He puts forward, verse 25, Jesus. It's the same idea in Hebrews where it writes of Jesus that I have come to do your will. You have given me a body prepared for me to prove to the world that God indeed doesn't just love you, 
but provides the righteousness that he requires. Jesus has fulfilled all the law's requirements, and if you are in Christ, you are seen just exactly as Jesus before God. Now, let me give you my favorite illustration. I'm sorry I've used this for kids' illustration, but I'm telling you, this is the best I can do. Way back in the day, we had this nasty, dirty umbrella. It was one of those porch umbrellas, and it would sit out there, and the wind would blow, and it would fall over, and it got so broken and so nasty, and we were cheap. We tried to get as much mileage out of it we could, but I put it by the road because now it was just trash, and the trash people wouldn't take it. Sure, there was some rule, but I thought they looked at it like, I'm not taking that junk. So being myself, what I did with it, I just took it and I stuck it in this corner of the house outside where you really couldn't see it. And I thought my wife wouldn't be able to see it. And it got infested with bugs and roly-polies and somehow dirt got in there. I don't know how dirt got in there. It got all moldy and nasty. And the worse it got, I just didn't, I just didn't want to, I just acted like it wasn't there. And then one day, our youth group came by and they were doing one of these Games where you trade something to get something better and everybody starts with a penny, right? Well, by the time they got to us, they had this phenomenal outdoor, like canvas, that old school woven chair, aluminum, my favorite kind of chair. And I don't know how they got it because it was in perfect mint condition. And they were like, hey, we want to give you this chair, but you got to give us something better. And then I'm being cheap. I don't want them going to my garage and finding something better. I don't want to support the youth group. <clears throat> and they go running around, and they go outside, and they find this umbrella. It must have been like a fourth grader in the youth group sneaking in there. Let's use this umbrella. I was like, you're going to trade me that chair? For that umbrella? Mm-hmm. Okay. You take the dirty, nasty, moldy, stinky umbrella, and I'll take the chair. Okay. And off they went. That is exactly what happens in the gospel. Jesus takes your sin. And he gives you his righteousness. And do you know what you're supposed to do with that? It's our last point. Sit in it. Sit in the chair. But that's not the word he uses here. He uses the word faith. Faith. Rest in his work for you. He uses the word faith eight times times faith not works faith not your worth faith 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 alone faith period fritz how many times are you going to say faith sit in the chair in luke chapter 7 the jewish group wanted jesus to do something for their friend 
He was not a Jewish person. He was a Gentile. And so they went to Jesus and said, this dude has helped us build the temple. He's done all this great stuff for our people. He is a worthy person. You should help him because he's worthy. And somehow this Gentile guy knew that's not how God works. And he said, he sent somebody else. And they said to Jesus, whoa, 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 no, 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 that's not, no. I'm not worthy, but I still want you to help me. You know what Jesus says? It says he marveled at this man. And then he said, I have found no one else in Israel that has that kind of what? Faith. Faith. It's what Murray said earlier. Unworthy? Come on. I want that chair. And once you get that chair and you sit in it, you know what you want to do? You want to get up and get going, don't you? Just keep the chair attached to you when you go. Because that's what Paul says at the very end. He says, was this mean we just throw the law out and all the obedience part? No, not at all. But while sitting in Jesus, resting in Jesus, believing in Jesus, faith in Jesus, you take that chair and you strap it to your waist or however you would do it, and you run. You run. In such a way that no longer makes all these distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. That's what he says. Quit talking about the boat you're in and how great that boat is and how bad their boat is. Your boat's leaking without Jesus. Rejoice that you're in His boat. That's why I praise God for a hospitality committee that would say, you know what? We got this preschool. They do a fall festival. We do a fall festival. Let's do it together. And I know it's awkward introducing yourself to new people and people you don't know, but what if God wants you to do that? What if God wants you to reach people that are very much just like you, but on the outside maybe aren't? And He wants you to boast in His righteousness, not in your own. Let me just close with this because I, I don't know how to close this sermon. Jesus, y'all know John the Baptist. And Jesus said about John the Baptist, if, if justification were by works, he's the greatest. We don't even need a competition. There is no top ten. He's the king of the mountain and nobody else is near the mountain if that's how it worked. He was the greatest Christian on this earth ever. Billy Graham, not near the mountain. Mother Teresa, nope. Tim Keller, uh-uh. No. But you know what else he said? Yet. Yet. The least in the kingdom of heaven the person that has just enough faith to get out of bed in the morning and say, God, everything is telling me this is true, but I'm going to believe you today and I'm going to put one foot on the ground and get out of bed. The person that's hanging on by a thread. The person that, that says, I believe, help my unbelief. 
that person, Jesus says, is greater than John the Baptist. You know why? Because John the Baptist was a map. What's the first thing out of his mouth? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away even John the Baptist's sin. And he had plenty, trust me. We're either going to celebrate our righteousness like Juice Plus, or we're going to boast in the righteousness of Jesus. Let's pray. God, you, you know I'm a person that spent so much of my life trying to figure this out. And then in somewhere about 1993, you opened my eyes to begin to understand it. You gave me Christians and a Christian community and a church and a seminary and a ministry, all these things to, to just continue to lovingly, graciously pour this into my heart and soul. God, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. For those who have understood this before, and maybe they've gotten back on the hamster wheel, refresh their faith in Christ today, that they would run with joy. And Lord, for those who think this is a hill of beans, uh, and they're going to run back to their righteousness, Lord, you are the one who can help them. We pray that you would. We pray that you would make this a church that boasts in Christ alone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.